You know, I uh, have to confess to you right at the outset that this is not one of the easiest messages for me to prepare. As most of you know, that we've been going through the fruit of the Spirit. And this is the ninth one, and it's about self-control. And the struggle I had to go through is how can I preach on self-control in a world that scorns self-control? Everything else that is surrounding us, all of us, not just you, all of us, scorning self-control. Even those of us parents in bringing up our children, one of the greatest struggle in teaching our children the subject of self-control because they are surrounded with a sea of self-indulgence and then we have to train them in the area of self-control. I mean, talking to, about self-control in a world that scorns it is like swimming upstream. And I'm aware of that and believe it or not, I'm aware of it as I preach this message. Some of you are not going to like what I have to say. But at least I want you to listen. In fact, I read this week in a Christian magazine a pastor in the Midwest who was bemoaning how terrible it is that the influence on television upon our children. And and he wrote in his letter, he said, I tried to teach my little girl to memorize the fruit of the Spirit. And finally she came and was very excitedly said, well, I now memorize the fruit of the Spirit. And the dad was very enthusiastic about it, and she stood there and she started enumerating them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and remote control. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the fruit of the Spirit, I can tell you that. In fact, in many a university campus, the word self-control is a dirty word. It's a dirty word. And to illustrate what I mean, a young man went to see a psychiatrist. And he said to him, he said, Doc, I have no ability for self-control. And I often find myself doing the wrong thing. And my conscience is bothering me. And the psychiatrist said to him, he said, well, I suppose you want something to help you strengthen your will. He said, oh, no, Doc, you don't understand. I want something that would weaken my conscience. And that is... Truly, what is going on? And here we are, commanded by God Himself, the Lord Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach self-control, to proclaim self-control as a fruit of the Spirit-filled life. You remember back in the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah, homeland, he was in exile. He was working for the king of Persia. But then he heard that his hometown of Jerusalem, is in ruins. But then he hears that the walls of the city is broken. And at that point, Nehemiah becomes broken in his own spirit. He said, but he already knew that. Why is the brokenness of the wall really got him out of shape? Why did this break him so much that he cried uncontrollably? And I'm going to tell you exactly why. Because the brokenness of the walls of a city is a symbol of a total collapse. You see, in the Middle East and countries and towns and cities, when the walls are broken in any given city, it's a sign of destruction. It's a sign of loss of that city's identity. A city without wall is a city that is vulnerable to all sorts of enemies come in and loot and steal. 
A city without walls is a city that has lost complete control of its destiny. And that is why in the book of Proverbs, write them down, chapter 16, verse 32, and chapter 25, verse 28, it tells us in no uncertain terms that lack of self-control is like a city that is without walls. There is a definite connection between the two. The lack of self-control is a calamity. We might not take it seriously, but let me tell you, it is a calamity beyond description. It is a calamity bigger even than the brokenness of a city wall. Why? Because it means that an eternal soul has reached the final state of decay. Beloved friends, I want to tell you, please listen to me. I don't want you to misunderstand me, but I want to tell you that our generation's lack of self-control is Satan's way of preparing us for destruction. Our generation's lack of self-control is the broken walls that is going to lead him into our very souls. Our generation's promotion of self-indulgence is the first step toward making us vulnerable to every wild and godless enemy. Our generation's race for discarding every vestige of self-control is opening our spirits to the man of lawlessness that the Bible talks about. Our generation's push for unrestrained passion and uncontrollable temper is Satan's strategy to leave us open to all forms of antichrist. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18... The Apostle Paul draws an analogy between a person who loses control of his senses because of drunkenness and a person who loses control of his life because he or she is filled of the Holy Spirit of God. It's a different spirit. (laughs) Both the drunk and the spirit-filled give up control of their lives to another force. The drunk gives up control to alcohol. The spirit-filled gives up control to the Holy Spirit of God in his life or her life. And I want to declare to you that the Christian self-control is impossible without the power of the spirit-filled life. And to be filled of the Spirit of God is a decision. Just as the person who picks up that drink and gets drunk is, makes a decision, you being filled of the Spirit of God, it begins with a decision. That I am going to give up control to somebody else. His name is the Holy Spirit. The alcoholic says, I don't want to be in control. I want alcohol to control me. So the Spirit-filled believer If he wants to have self-control, he must surrender control to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, to the world, this is gibberish. But to you believers, understand what I'm talking about. And when the Holy Spirit of God comes in, when the Holy Spirit of God moves in, when it comes into your bloodstream and into your mind, into your heart, He will love through you. 
He will make you bubble with joy even in tough times. He will tranquilize you with peace. He will subdue you with patience. He will make you hilarious in kindness. He will absolutely fill you with goodness. He will endow you with faithfulness. He will give you meekness, which is strength under control. He will give you Holy Spirit self-control. That's how being filled with the Spirit, moment by moment, works. And how the fruit of the Spirit are born in your life and mine. Well, before I get carried away, I have three things I want to tell you about self-control. Three things that I have learned the hard way about self-control. Number one, self-control is not self-mastery. Self-control is not self-mastery. Secondly, self-control is not self-improvement. And the third thing I want to tell you about self-control is that it has a focus. It has a goal, and it reaches for it. Self-control, that is the fruit of the Spirit, is not the same thing as self-mastery that motivational speakers talk about. They're two different things altogether. The Bible is talking about self-surrender, not self-mastery. And here's the contrast between the two. Listen carefully, please. Here's the contrast between the two. Self-control is being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Self-mastery is dependent entirely on your power, on your will. Self-control is what takes place in your life out of the abundance that springs out of your love for Jesus Christ. Self-mastery is designed to make you take control of your destiny. Self-mastery is what the Pharisees practiced, and they practiced it really well. As a matter of fact, from the outside, their life was so disciplined that when they walked by, people said, Wow, look at him. Isn't he got great discipline? Isn't he a holy man? You know, but Jesus, the one who sees on the inside, said... He said, you are nothing but a white sepulcher that is painted white on the outside and the inside is nothing but dead bones. Because outside discipline may fool people, but it's not going to fool God. The Lord Jesus himself talked about the heart and the discipline of the heart because his Holy Spirit is the only one who can give it to us. You see, only the Holy Spirit can give you the assurance That all is under control. You know what the best about self-mastery? At its best, when your soul is naked before God, and you're all alone with God, you know that things are out of control. No matter how much all the rah-rah and all all the motivational stuff, that's fine. But when you're all alone before God, deep down you know that things are out of control. And only the Holy Spirit of God can give you that. You know, the Stoics were really the cousins of the Pharisees when it comes to that area. They were worshiping at the shrine of the sovereign self-will. You know, they're the grit your teeth and make it happen, boy, kind of people of our modern day. They're the Stoics. But you know what? When they are confronted with the unexpected, listen to me, when they are confronted with the unexpected, they become fatalistic And morbid because there's nothing below the surface to hold them up as the Holy Spirit of God does for the spirit-filled believer. You know, I, I heard the other day about a man who really wanted to be so disciplined and he was willing to do anything only if he can live to be 100. 
So he went to the doctor and he said, now, doc, he said, what can I do to live to be 100? I don't care what it is. I got self-mastery and I can discipline myself. Just tell me whatever it is. I can do it. (laughs) The doctor said, well, uh, first of all, you got to give up cakes and cookies and ice cream. No problem. Uh, Well, then you have to give up red meat and potatoes and bread. No problem. And you have to give up soft drink of all kinds. Coffee and tea. man said, it's all right. He said, uh, it's okay. But were you telling me that if I do all this, will I live to be 100? The doctor said, well, I can't guarantee that. But if you do all that, it will certainly feel like it. (laughs) (laughs) Self-control is not self-mastery. And secondly, biblical self-control is not self-improvement. I want to say this at the beginning because I don't want any of you to misunderstand me. I am all for self-improvement. I'm not preaching against it. So understand that at the outset. All I'm saying is that it is not the same as biblical self-control. Biblical self-control is for the Christian simply because of the new divine nature. It's only possible because of the new divine nature that became ours when we became born again. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Here's what the Apostle Peter is saying. He's saying, We are participants in the divine nature and escape from corruption of the world, which is caused by evil desire. Hear me right. There is no such thing. Listen to me, please. There is no such thing as putting your spiritual growth on autopilot and go to sleep, spiritually speaking. There is no such thing. It cannot happen. It will not happen. If I want to enjoy the power of God working in my life, I have to cooperate with God in that controlling process. I have to be willing to cooperate with God. You say, cooperate in what? In controlling all the junk that I have inside of me. You say, you have junk inside of you. I'm not going to talk to you. Let me tell you something. The junk inside of you is even worse. (laughs) Of course I have junk inside of me. Listen. My old nature with which I was born wants to be out of control. (laughs) And not once or twice. All day long. (laughs) My old nature with which I was born wants me to have no boundaries in my life. My old nature by which I was born wants to run wild and do everything to excess. But my new nature that was given to me through rebirth and regeneration wants to glorify God. And the way it glorifies God is by putting the brakes on my old nature. (laughs) My new nature cannot work together in tandem. That is an impossibility. There are a lot of Christians out there and they're putting one foot here and one foot there. And look what's happening to them. You either exhibit one or the other. Self-improvement says, do it a little bit at a time. As long as you're making progress, it's okay. You're not going to lose weight overnight. I'm aware of that. Then I know it. You're not going to quit cold turkey. Build up to it. Just work at it. And, you know, be happy for whatever progress you have made. That's self-improvement. But it is not 
the self-control that the Bible is talking about as the fruit of the Spirit. In the Christian life, you cannot get those two natures to cooperate together. They will not. They cannot. They have necessity in, at enmity with each other. You either exhibit the one or the other. Now, there are some people who confuse the Christian life with self-improvement, and they think that the Christian life is self-improvement program. It is not. So what they do? They work on the most troublesome area of their life, and they said, I'm going to take control of that area, whatever it is, addiction or whatever it may be. I'm going to stop that. I'm going to do better. And they really genuinely, in their will, in their heart, in their desire, they really do. They want to. Before long, they find themselves in a much worse shape than they were before. What has happened here? What's going on? I'm going to let Jesus tell you what's happening here, okay? So it's not me and my opinion. Let Jesus speak to you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 11. Because there, as far as I'm concerned, one of the great gems in the Scripture that teaches us the difference between self-improvement and self-control under the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Here's what happens, Jesus said. When you decide to kick out the unclean spirit out of the house of your heart, he's going to leave. The unclean spirit is going to get out. The house of your heart is empty. You have not asked the Holy Spirit to come in and fill it. Not only at that moment, but moment by moment, day by day, you have not invited the Holy Spirit to come into your life and strengthen you every single day, every single moment of your life. You have not done that. So what's happening to the house of your heart? It's empty. It's all cleaned up. It's tidy and neat. Meanwhile, where is that unclean spirit? He's not very far. He's just hiding behind a column here. And you know what? He keeps looking over there. Like every two seconds. He hasn't gone very far. He keeps looking over. He keeps looking over. And he waits for an opportunity. For a weakening in the will. For a weakening in the desire. And here's what Jesus said. He goes out there and he brings seven other spirits worse than he is. And they move into that house and take over. And listen to the words of Jesus. In verse 26 of Luke chapter 11. He said, the last state becomes worse than the first. Any of us, and I say us because I'm with you. I have tried that. Who have tried on the strength of our self-will to get rid of anything and be delivered from anything we bombed out again and again. Now, I don't want to ask you to say amen if you, if you experience what I have experienced. Until I came to understand what Jesus is saying in Luke 11, I couldn't understand why I could not overcome. Because every time I kick the butt of that devil, he, you know, he goes out and brings seven back with him. Why? Because I'm doing it in my own strength. I can't do it in my own strength. Here's the words of Jesus. What happens? The last state becomes worse than the first. And that is why self-improvement program for Christian living is a disaster. It will not work. But when the Spirit of God indwells you, the fruit of the Spirit is going to kick the works of the flesh till kingdom come. Self-control is not self-mastery. Self-control is not self-improvement. But thirdly, I want to tell you that self-control must have a focus. Must have a focus. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and following. What is Paul doing here? He is using the analogy of the athlete 
with which he was very, very familiar in the Greek culture. The Greeks were just as crazy about sports as we are in this day, if not worse. I mean, he sees it everywhere he goes within the Greek Roman Empire and all the influence of the Greek culture. And here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Look at it in the verse. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 24. If you and I take our walk with the Lord as seriously as a committed athlete to his sport, we're going to be in business. That's a rough translation, but it's accurate. Anyone who knows anything about successful athletes, they know that they are very focused. They're extremely focused. All of the training and all of the discipline, all the sacrifice, all of the hard decisions, all of that taking place. Why? Because their eye is on that event. The athlete is focusing on the performance of that day. So what is the Apostle Paul saying to Christians who turn up at church five or ten minutes after worship has begun, arriving unprepared for worship, ill-equipped for worship, arriving frazzled and hassled? Here's what Paul would say. He was saying that you are not as serious about your commitment to Christ as the athlete to his sport. That's what he's saying. The athlete is at the stadium hours before the event. Even the spectators are there hours before the events, but not in the church of Jesus Christ. The athlete is there, ready, with his equipment, with his gear, with uniform in hand. He is ready. The athlete is there conditioning his mind, conditioning his body for that great event. Why? Because he is serious about winning. He's serious about winning because it is, he is goal-oriented. He is purpose-oriented, and his goal is to win. He is to exercise self-control. He is to exercise perseverance. He is to watch his weight. He is to watch his stamina. Why? Because that's his focus. Christian, where is your focus? Where is your focus today? What's the focus of your life? Please, for God's sake, answer it to yourself. Where's your focus? I mean, if, if you ask me today to run a 26-mile marathon, I'll do it. Now, I'll surprise some of you. <laughs> I'll do it. But I'm going to get to the finish line two days from now. <laughs> My eldest daughter ran a marathon in Washington, D.C. a year ago, and she literally practiced for a year and a half. To get to 26-mile marathon. Why would I get there two days from now? Because I'm, I've not practiced for it. I'm not prepared for it. I'm not equipped for it. I'm not trained for it. But if I spend less than 30 hours a week in preparation of the message that I bring to you from the Lord Sunday after Sunday, then I'm going to come up here and I'm going to stand and all you're going to see and hear is the east wind. <laughs> Beloved friends, please listen to me. The goal of every believer should be the crown in heaven. The purpose for which you strive should be the crown in heaven. Nothing else. All the other things you do are basically sub-goals that leads you into the big goal, that big purpose. But that crown in heaven, listen to me, will not be had without self-control, without self-discipline, without self-giving. Here's what Paul is saying. He said, if the athlete 
focuses and works so hard on a crummy wreath. How much more should be our striving for a real crown? What does self-control mean? It means to me at least. It tells me that it requires for me to know my weaknesses. It requires me to know my vulnerabilities. It requires of me to know what likely doors and windows that I'm inclined to leave ajar for the enemy to come in and set up his strongholds that are designed to deprive me of my crown. And the reason many Christians live a life that is spiritual shipwreck is because they do not take careful stock of their weaknesses, let alone take meticulous steps in order to surrender them to the Lord and be spirit-filled day by day, moment by moment, in order to have His power and have victory over those areas. There was a boy by the name of Thomas. Thomas was an unpopular young boy. His family was very rich and very influential in the community. But Thomas was not interested in the wealth. He was not interested in the family wealth, which frustrated his parents no end. Finally, at the age of 14, his father sent him to a private boarding school. And when he got there, one of the teachers witnessed to him and led him to the Lord, and he received Jesus as Savior and Lord. The other students, of course, ridiculed him mercilessly about his commitment to Christ. Then one day in class, Thomas had to debate the existence of God. And suddenly it became very clear to everyone that this boy is a true thinker, that all that focus is for a reason. And he surprised his peers. He, he, he amazed his teachers with that brilliant arguments and, and his grasp of logic. His commitment to the truth of the Scripture brought him respect, but also disdain on the part of others. His family were really embarrassed about his commitment to the Lord. And they wished that he would just give that up. Family expected him to come back and get involved in the business and become more prosperous, but he refused. His older brothers were all playboys. They decided one day to kidnap him. And they detained him for a year, but not in a prison cell. They detained him for a year in a lap of luxury. They provided him with everything that money could buy. They tried to get him to lose interest in this, in the Lord Jesus Christ. They got him to lose interest in that absolute commitment that he has. They gave him money. They offered him to, offered to set him up in business. They even brought prostitutes to the house. And Thomas rejected all of this by the power of God the Holy Spirit. His commitment to Christ gave him true biblical self-control. His brothers were bewildered and confused and that he would refuse power, sex, and money and all of that. So they gave up finally and left him alone. And Thomas went back to the university and he became the most influential thinker in all of our Christian history. His name was Thomas Aquinas. His writing filled 18 large volumes. He practically wrote a commentary on every book in the Bible. How come? Because he understood that this self-control is not self-mastery, that this self-control is not self-improvement, but this self-control that comes as a result of inner filling of the Holy Spirit is a 
a gratitude to the God who loved him and died for him. You see, it's not just do it now. When your heart is filled with gratitude to the God who died for you to pay the penalty of your sin and the wages of your sin to give you power and victory over sin, you cannot help it but give yourself to him. May our gratitude to our God produces in us biblical self-control. Lord God, you are the seer and the watcher and the knowing of all that goes on in our lives. Your word said, you know us better than we know ourselves. In fact, many times our own hearts deceive us. And therefore, we come to you in absolute gratitude, in thanksgiving, in heart that is bursting with thankfulness. Because when you loved us, you loved us to the end. There were no half measures in your love. There was no half commitment in your love. And Father, I pray that as we seek to be filled of your Holy Spirit today and every day and every moment of every day, that we will bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, including self-control. For we surrender to you any control that we have made upon our lives. Thank you for answering our prayers because we pray in accordance with your will and in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.